in a world full of complex challenges. We need more open-hearted opportunities to express ourselves. In a world full of heated debate, we need more open-minded opportunities to listen to each other. In a world full of fear and anxiety, we need more chances to chill and turn toward one another. Join us as we host conversations with educators, artists, activists, community members, and youth to surface the intergenerational wisdom we need to understand, adapt to, and solve the urgent issues facing humanity. Welcome to episode three of the Chill Podcast. We are Chill, Callie, Heather, Lois, and Louise. In our last episode, we shared what happened in the six generational focus groups that we met with last year. So those were the the Gen Z focus group, millennials, Gen Xers, boomers, and the greatest generations. We also listened to some of their clips to introduce you to their ideas and the issues that they brought up um, in the focus groups when we were talking about the opportunities facing the world in education today and how they intersect. So in this episode, we would like to go deeper. We want to look at the big themes that surfaced from all the focus group conversations as a whole and look at some of the nuances that distinguished them from each other. So we've poured over the recordings from these conversations and it's provoked new ideas for each of us. So why don't we go around one at a time here at the table and each share something that resonated with us, you know, individually. And Callie, let's start with you. So one of the things that everyone talked about is one of the primary problems is that there's not enough listening in the world and there's so much conflict in our conversations. I know we mentioned this briefly in the first two episodes, but it's really remarkable that every group raised the importance of being able to listen to people with different perspectives. Across generational cohort groups, the inability to listen and be curious about differing viewpoints was a problem that participants felt affects our ability to seriously work together towards better outcomes on any of the other difficult issues. In our high school group, Grace was the first one to name that she thought listening was the biggest problem in society. That's an issue that common where I live. Like we're so quick to like discredit other people and tell them that the experiences they're having is not really what they're having, you know? And I think really listening and understanding people as best as we can and not like telling people that you know, that they're experiencing something when they, like, they're not experiencing something that they really are. I think that's an issue where I live. I think that's just throughout the world. Like, we don't really, like, listen. And Maya agreed. I agree. I think it's just, like, being curious without being judgmental and just, like, opening, being open and just not immediately jumping to conclusions. But it's it's the curiosity without the judgment that I think is what's missing from everything. Grace describes feeling dismissed by older, more experienced people. My grandparents, they cannot listen to me. It's once again, putting yourself in somebody's like perspective and letting, you know, and it's like, they can't validate like my experiences or the experiences of others. And I think it's causing extreme divide in families or within relationships because, you know, they're, they're just not willing to think about things as if you were another person or you know, you were identified differently or you came from a different background, you know? It's just, I think it's really hard to have, like, talks with people from different generations when you think oppositely. To improve listening, Mark from our beta group reflects inward. Am I fully valuing who I am inside the circumstance? And then conversely, am I also honoring the person that I'm uh, working with? And more importantly, 
are we constantly reviewing the context of our circumstance so we're finding the grand truth around that so that we can honor all three simultaneously? Uh, or when there's conflict, we recognize, oh, it's because I'm not honoring myself and I'm not speaking up or because I'm shouting over the other people and I'm not allowing them to speak or that we've totally gotten off track here. Paul Hetland from the Boomer Group and Angelo from the Gen Z Group offer additional strategies for listening. Well, I guess when I look at polarization, uh, I'm trying to get a sense of what it is the, the polarized sides agree on. And I think that's where the problem lies. My view, our society has become increasingly vertical. The conversation is up and down. And it needs to be much, much more horizontal and across boundaries that you're suggesting. So working to create that, again, I don't know how we do it, but taking that as a key aim, maybe the key aim, I'm not sure, in education is pretty important. I think um, rather than just believing in what you think is true, I think both of these two people, they should try to understand each other rather than believing what you think is true. Just try to understand them and let them try to understand you. The art of listening really requires that, that we self-regulate deeply so that we can respond instead of react. And during COVID, I think it, uh, there was a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. And I think we lost our ability to regulate our own emotions and we became reactive. So our communication broke down very much because we weren't able to monitor and regulate our own emotional and mental health. And that listening is dependent on us stopping, breathing, and choosing to respond instead of react. And when we can master our internal space, that's when we can be good listeners. This is particularly true with information that scares us, like climate change. Yeah, climate change. Uh, that's the issue that actually I wanted to bring up. So can I go next? Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you, Kelly. Climate change was certainly an urgent issue that people wanted to talk about in our focus groups. There was broad agreement across all of the cohorts that climate change is a most pressing issue of our time. So we're going to just start. Here's Matt, Mark, and Paul from three different focus groups. And not from the Bible. And not from the <laughs> Bible on climate change. I guess uh, my brain went very sick and I was worried about the uh, utilization of nuclear weapons. Um, <laughs> very, very concrete, kind of like... Uh, the, the idea of using low yield or tactical nuclear weapons. I feel like whenever something like this happens with, with, a, with a war going on with a superpower that has that, I always concern, I'm concerned about just the survival of the species. Um, and then building off of that, I think longitudinally, you know, uh, ecological collapse related to and or directly influenced by anthropogenic climate change. So those are the longer term issues that I think. Uh, we have to face. And I think the, the questions about how to tackle those issues, um, which are so huge, uh, you know, do dovetail with the idea of, do, do you even touch those third rails, which don't really have easy answers? Because if we no longer have um, an environment that is healthy to live in, um, where are we going? 
uh, and how are we going to fix that? And, and it seems to be the world um, view that we want things to get bad enough before we really respond and act to it. To me, the overridingly, maybe it's the leading edge or the overridingly important uh, issue is uh, climate catastrophe. Yeah, climate change was a big one. The boomers seem to have the most to say about it, but it makes me wonder, are the middle generations more worried about third rails, I'm using air quotes, like Matt just said, and the elders may feel more confident, you know, in addressing that hot topic because they have, again, my air quotes, nothing to lose. Regardless, the groups had a lot to say about the issue. Here's my niece, Maya, and brother, Paul. I mean, I don't know, just because, like, I again, there are so many, but I feel like, especially with the COP26 summit going on right now, that's been at the forefront of my mind. Um, and that's something that, like, is gonna affect everybody at some point in time. So, whereas other issues, like it'll definitely affect a lot of people, but they might affect a lesser proportions, but climate change is gonna somehow do something to all of us at some point. So it seems like a really obviously big issue that we're facing. I think the failure is the failure of humans to understand uh, their place in the natural world. And, that, I think, has been exacerbated by the institutions that we have created and that we now allow to govern us. Marco, a millennial, and Raphael from The Greatest Generation, both in California, added, To me, it feels like there's a, a, a big disconnect with the land. And I think that's kind of what was coming to mind, too, of like this idea of like dominance over another person like you know people want to dominate have power over somebody power over land own land um and these are just like these really kind of colonial forms of thought that still need to kind of wither away climate change warfare and capitalism they are all intertwined and uh self-supporting uh they all are causes and effects that are intimately wedded together. And I want to add in one more clip from Paul. Somebody in a, in a class a little while back was asking, here in Tucson, was asking Noam Chomsky, uh, is there a potential solution or way through climate change under capitalism? And his response was, you better hope so. Because oh. there's, no, there's nothing else on the horizon right now wow. that has that kind of scale. I really remember Paul saying that and, and feeling, yeah, we have to do something. And uh, yeah, we have to change our own minds and those of others, and we have to do it fast. We can't even be tempted to believe there's nothing we can do. We can't. No. That part by Paul that really stood out to me that we just... We have to do something, and we really do need to have conversations about it. And we can't just talk about it with scientists. we got to talk with artists, with educators, with policymakers, with construction workers, with transportation. Exactly. You know, it needs to be... With the businesses. It needs to be an interdisciplinary conversation because exactly. we can't just solve it in one exactly. discipline. You know, that's what really struck me was the consistent thread that none of these issues, that something like climate change cannot be a standalone issue, that everything is in, interconnected. Um, that includes our 
divisive public discourse. It includes what um, Callie was talking about, this inability to listen to people or work with people who have different beliefs and ideas. It has to do with that um, there are these urgent issues like climate change, but they result in huge population migrations, lack of access to food and water for huge populations of people, and it all connects to the racial, economic, and ethnic in inequities, poverty, and war that we're facing. They are all intimately tied together. And the other thing that uh, really struck me was how these issues in the world really do intersect in the conversations with the issues in education and the artificial way that we compartmentalize children's experiences in classrooms where there's 50 minutes in science and 50 minutes in history and you're lucky if you get any art at all. Yeah, it's it, like way not good enough. I mean, it doesn't teach them to think the way they have to think. No, it teach it them, teaches them everything siloed and it's just not how the world operates. It simply perpetuates an inability for people to appreciate the systemic intersections of the problems that are facing society. So it keeps us yeah. in the same yeah. holding pattern. Mark, a boomer and dance educator, describes the school that he worked at where the faculty had actually worked hard to develop strategies that integrated the curriculum so that students could see how the issues they were studying fit together and how they themselves fit in. And they're, they're very simple platforms. Like I, I, I was a teaching artist at, a, at an elementary school in which the, um, every year the, um, the, the faculty would meet and they would decide on an overall theme for that year. And that all of the, the teachers and all the faculty would gear their curriculum towards that one subject. So there was a there was a cross reading across the the, the 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 curriculum, and the the teachers all respected one another immensely, and so they would refer to well in math class you're doing this right so do you see how that affects what you're doing here in the science class and also in your your language arts class and because it was they they respected the multi generational aspects of where the kids were at in their learning. It, it all fed together. So the, the children all felt like they were an, an, a valuable part of the school and they were valuable contributors to that, that, that this was their education, not something that was being foisted upon them. That was the conversation, Louise, where you shared about the way your work at the Center for Integrated Learning had really tried to make connections and a web of knowledge with different ages and disciplines and partners. We were able to um, bring people who were looking for more just than the test and deliver kind of situations that you're talking about, Alyssa, who were interested in doing more. And we were able to bring Lois and researchers and artists and um, teachers across the curriculum together to really do great work and then to make it visible and to make connections. And so we built a real community and we connected people. We connected artists, we connected arts teachers, we connected math teachers, we connected high school people, we connected parents, we connected universities. And we realized that it was an ecosystem that everyone's knowledge really mattered. I love that word ecosystem that you used. Um, that just makes so much sense to me. And just the emphasis you had on the intergenerational respect, because I think that's 
where there can cause even more divide. I mean, I just remember at my school um, sometimes feeling like some of the older generation teachers, you did, which when they talked to me, it really was just like, you know, you think you know what you're doing, but you really know nothing because you're young. But those were the same people who were asking me to come down and help them with, you know, reading an email because they didn't know how to do really basic things. And so it just immediately caused kind of an emotional divide. And I'm sure I did things too, uh, unintentionally that um, added to that. And so I love that, you know, just the, the concept and the image of working together as an ecosystem, knowing that all of the different parts rely on each other. Because, you know, we, when I teach my students about ecosystems, you take out one thing and, and it affects the entire, um, pop, you know, all of the other parts of the ecosystem because they are dependent on one another. And, um, and I, I really love helping professionals see that and so that uh, they really can thrive in the way that I think a healthy ecosystem would. Our Zoom Mystery, a Gen Xer and community arts and social practice scholar, spoke about how important it is for educators to think locally and to ground study and curriculum in a foundation of place. To me, one of the reasons where uh, that we are so inept in engaging with the dynamics of a, of, of a floundering ecology uh, is that we have really detached education from its context and uh, people's relationship with place. And this is definitely the ecological world around, the physical world around us, our cities, our, our you know, oceans, our rivers, our mangroves, the, that, that kind of dynamic. And also the, the, the communities and the other species, the beyond human species that in, are exist within those dynamics. And, and science has, has you know, we, we do talk about people's science and there is, I think, uh, more and more um, connection to, uh, to, you know, teaching science within, within a context. But I think that when we, when we kind of, again, start to de-link science from the humanities, we lose that relationship of place and how everything ultimately comes back to people's relationship with place. And now when we look at mass migration across the world, so much of that migration is actually climate uh, uh, change induced, even though it is then layered on with political, social, religious layers to it, it's because crops have failed. Uh, economy has, has, has kind of broken because supply chains don't work. Like all of this comes back to people's relationship to place. And to me, it is a huge chasm in education that we have really like, you know, the fact that we teach the same things in India as we teach in a U.S. classroom really confounds me that, that you know, what is the contextual uh, dynamics that we are engaging with? How, how do we validate community learning, right? Like, so uh, are we able to give credits for community learning versus just in-school learning or institutional learning? How do we do that? I was really impressed with the clear lines people drew from how we teach content areas in classrooms and how we specialize and separate issues in the world and the impact that that has on how we actually treat each other and the resulting divisiveness that we're encountering right now in our country. Stephen Baugh, 
a retired district superintendent from the Greatest Generations Group, made the connection between how human beings are treating the natural resources on our planet and how we treat ourselves and other human beings. I suppose we, we have an opportunity to learn to deal with one another, to value one another, respect one another. Uh, I, I also wanted to comment that the, the increased women's movement, the, uh, the Me Too uh, uh, opportunities that may not be great to refer to that, but to me, that means women coming forth with their creativity, with their, with their intelligence and being accepted and so forth and so on. Also the Black Lives Matter uh, movement to me is an effort that has real promise in bringing those who are marginalized more to the forefront. Matthew Teeter, a millennial and public school principal have further ideas about our systems of power that perpetuate inequities and the need for systems that are inclusive of everyone. I gravitate towards uh, Universal Design for Learning, UDL, and uh, it drew its inspiration from universal, universal design that really started in architecture back in the 60s, whereas when you like design a building, like, design the building for everybody, you know, like uh, put ramps in so that, uh, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking in an electric wheelchair or Usain Bolt, the fastest human ever to walk the face of the earth, could both come into the building without any barriers. And I think that um, that philosophy has multiple applications and across all industries and sectors where, um, you know, just making sure that you're not just focusing. Uh, I mean, I was even taught this. I was taught, said, you know, focus on the middle, find the barometer kid and, and you know, just use that student or maybe small group of students to kind of dictate how fast you go. Um, and, and, and I feel like um, Universal Design or UD has the idea of focusing on the people on the margins um, in all various aspects and being inclusive in that way. Um, and so that means both people that struggle the most for whatever reason and also people that flourish the most. Um, and then hopefully in those, in that searching and that swath of humanity, you also reach people that are in the middle, but it won't be just the people that are in the middle. So I think it'd be interesting to kind of also vary, vary things along, you know, lines of educational attainment and, you know, wealth and income and, um, you know, systems of power, making sure you're talking about different identities, um, gender, race, uh, sexual orientation, all those things. So Louise, what did you learn from, what do you know now that you didn't before? Listening to these conversations really deepened uh, what was an initial premise of our chill group, that by addressing the issues in education, we really have a chance or maybe our only chance at addressing these complex and terrifying issues that we're facing as human beings on this planet. And that they and that our idea that the two are intimately tied together is felt generally and that we that's where we need to where we really can make an impact and where we need to address the 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 knowledge that's out there. Mm -hmm. Great. All right, Lois. It's your turn. Okay. Well, what made an impact on me most was the unwavering hope for the future in every single conversation. Personally, 
I can feel overwhelmed and discouraged, and it's easy enough to believe we can't make a difference or that things won't change, for me anyway. There's certainly plenty of evidence of that, but we heard so many determined voices, and they said clearly that thinking this way really isn't a viable option, and they offered suggestions for how to hold on to hope. First, they told us that in complexity, like the kind that Louise was talking about, there's good and bad, and they said, we need to pull out the good. We have lots that has good in it, and our guests remind us to work with what we've got. Here's Alyssa talking about the good technology can bring in. You bring up the point that before people wanted to feel connected because they were more individual, and now people feel so connected that maybe they want to feel more individual. I, I feel like the internet has made it so that we're so connected everywhere um, that it, it almost has an opposite effect where then people find themselves in echo chambers and it can kind of add to that divisiveness. But then also with things like climate change, the internet has allowed us to see other parts of the world that we maybe weren't aware of before. And we're seeing these impacts that, yeah, maybe my neighborhood looks fine, but look at the ocean, look at these other countries, look at um, areas of the world that I wasn't aware of. And so it's just interesting that the internet can be such a blessing that, you know, raises our awareness and that also can um, make us be able to connect so far that it in a way divides us as well. And then Mark addresses the shadow side of social media. So often social media especially is used as a bully pulpit and a, and a way of, of people um, trying to boost themselves up by putting someone else down. And that's a terrible, um, uh, or I guess is better. It's a kind of a tragic thing that's occurred in the world. But Mark also says this. Wonderful things. I mean, in the, the past 20 years, if you think about the documentaries that have been made that uh, have just uh, drawn windows into and glimpses into the worlds that, uh, that people couldn't have imagined before. And I think that helps breed empathy. And here's Paul urging us to work with the systems we've got. And Steve Ba specifically addressing the system of public education. We have to aim, it seems to me, at something other than, well, you know, the perfection being the enemy, the good problem. We have to aim at something that's going to work more or less through present systems. Since we have a public school system that uh, has a responsibility uh, for the majority of children in our country to find a way to truly educate teachers, prospective teachers, to have a, a philosophy and a practice of what it means to provide access to knowledge for all children, to provide a nurturing pedagogy, to accept a stewardship responsibility for helping the young to become their best selves. And speaking of education, not surprisingly, people had plenty to say about what we need to do about that, to use it and to change it. Paul here is talking about education focusing more on community and ecology. How can, if it can, education be more oriented towards community and 
and ecology and the place of people in the world rather than how can I help you as a student to get ahead uh, or to have a decent life. Um, regardless of the kind of education you are able to offer your children, they may not survive a full lifetime under the current conditions unless something happens much more broadly. And Mark's talking about focusing education on using our minds fully. I guess what I've always seen is that there's a huge potential in regards to um, not only how we think and learn, but this idea of a, a rational mind, an intuitive mind that requires both sides of our being to, to see and understand and uh, live in the world. And then Raphael is talking about centering love in education. We have to make a revolution. And we have to make that revolution a revolution of consciousness and a bringing heart to it. The only thing, the only thing that is going to save us, you know, is love. And that's the thing that we have to learn to do first, most, and primarily learn to love and teach love. No matter what you teach, no matter what curriculum you have, if it is not rooted in love, it is not only useless, it is dangerous. Arzu continues in that line. Some of the things that, that came up right through the conversation is this dynamic of love and fear. And I, I really think that there's so many things, like you start off with the question of, what are the urgent issues that we're that we're dealing with? And automatically that just brings up fear, right? Like we're scared of climate change. We're scared of what these, these, this war on differences. We're scared of homogenization of everything. Uh, we're scared of the capitalist agenda, you know, and it's over how overpowering it is. And I think that that this whole dynamic of, of love and falling in love. Like, like how are the things that we're scared of, who's engaging with those things in love and through love? I've been talking with Lois a lot about David, David Sobel's work, and he talks about people's kids' relationship with place. And he says that if you, you know, teach a kid about like the rainforests uh, dying or the polar bears uh, going extinct, all you're doing is you're just kind of getting them into this space of helplessness. They have no way on how to act. But instead, if they develop a love for plants and then they have some way to relate to the rainforest, or if they develop a love for animals, then they have some way to live, relate to that polar bear. Like, so so the, the dynamic of, of, you know, how do you foreground love and love as the basis of connection versus and fear as the basis of disconnection. So I think that that, you know, really looking at who is engaging with these urgent issues through love and not fear, not imposition, but emergence, right? Finally, what we were told about hope is that it is the responsibility of every one of us. We don't have the choice to give up. You can't say we're doomed. Um, you know, the longest journey starts with the first step and it's going to be a long journey, but you have to do it. I learned so much from that. I mean, it was really remarkable to me to 
to have it be so obvious to people that I might drop out with despair. <laughs> um, also, I think the thing that really, really hit me as I've been learning more about um, BIPOC kids in education, especially black kids in education, is that love must be at the center of education for all kids. And it's so counter to what has happened in our schools. And it just gives me fire in the belly to change that as much as I can. And I guess what I got from these conversations is that just like kids need love, all, we all do. And that the task of not giving up hope, we can't do it by ourselves. We can only do it when we really connect with each other. Neurophysiologist Mary Helen Amardino Yang, we brought her out to speak a few years ago, and she poignantly announced that all schools need to be organized around relationships. And that simple principle is borne out in the neurophysiology, in the education research. Um, relationships, everything. Kelly, I want to know more about how we can build on those relationships that need to be the heart of every child's experience in school and where it's happening. How do we build on that to make it more of a, a real lived experience for everyone? So we know that relationships happen one person and one story at a time. And we have lots of people talking about how to reach across the aisles and engage in conversations and get to know people and shine a light on what works. Finding the, the highlighted pieces and the things that are really making a difference. Here's Mark talking about that. Well, just for example, the... Uh some of the brief conversations that I've had with Louise, and I've had some really in-depth conversations with Lois and, and some really good conversations with Callie. And, and um, it's not like we don't have the templates. I mean, when you, when you look at what uh, Louise was able to accomplish in Oakland um, in some, some challenging circumstances, you go, well, why aren't we looking at it as, as a model and saying, how do we, how do we transfer that? How do we translate it? People in our focus groups um, spoke to the many great examples everywhere where people are finding new and powerful ways to educate our children. And our goal is to surface ideas that shift the focus from status quo thinking that doesn't support a healthy future to ideas where people are working together and often locally toward human and life-affirming solutions. Derek Fenner points out that we all have so much to learn from our local communities. There are plenty of global examples out there. We can look to the Zapatistas. We can look at models all across the East. We can look at models all over the world of autonomous communities that are doing this, that have done it. We can look at in, in Italy, at Reggio Emilia. You know, you can look at all these things and all these places and have models. Um, two important people, I think, to bring into the conversation as you move forward in this um, would be the work that Django Paris and H. Sammy Aleem have been doing around culturally sustaining pedagogies. And so their work is exactly this idea. They posit, they say a culturally sustaining pedagogy is whenever education sustains the life weight of a community that has been and continues to be damaged and erased through schooling. And so it's their, their exact focus, and they have a book of research on this with a lot of, a lot of different people that have, are showing these models across the country and the world. Um, and I think that the work uh, that um, 
I'm trying to Matt Hearn, maybe deschooling society was a global model of um, un, sort of the unschooling movement, but it had lots of great case studies of these things are happening. Um, and there are places where it is successful. There's just not light shining on it. Mickey points out that there's a lot of wisdom in examining what doesn't work. Sometimes we're illuminating our failures. I think it ties back to something you said before, Derek, about um, institutions not wanting to let on things that might threaten them. I mean, like, but it, generally speaking, you're shining a light on some of these examples of where these things are working and working better. But in order to really, for that to break through, you have to help people see the, the current system isn't working, right? Like it's, it's like, why, why, why do we need an alternate system if the one, we're, all, we're all like in this and, you know, I think it's, it's doubly true of conservative communities, but I think all of us to some degree or many of us, many people are just, you know, you just follow the path because that's the path and you don't really question and, and voices that are questioning it are, are silenced. So like a, lot, a big part of this with education, I think is shining a light on what's not working and how it could be better, you know, instead of just doing the same old way because that's what we do. The wisdom of our octogenarians focused on global themes of love and truth. Here's Stephanie. One human being can make an, a massive difference. Even a child, as we know with Greta Thunberg and others, even one child can make a difference. And I really think it's critical to help us focus on the one here and the one there and the tiny idea over here, and then try to blow on those flames a little bit and share it with somebody else that may not have heard about it yet. Stephanie's vision of elevating individuals and fanning the flame can be applied to finding excellence in not just people, but in the community and in schools, one story at a time. Whether we look at non-examples or positive examples, we can identify indicators of transformational education. And that's what we plan to highlight on future episodes of this podcast. We want to shine a light on people, ideas, and stories that model hope and possibility and to blow on those flames so they can ignite and spread. Hmm. I know how much you love the metaphor of a wildfire. <laughs> I do. One thing that surprised me was when Derek talked about the importance of making sure that we give back to the people who share their stories with us. And it's like, I know that, but it was, it was really clear. And he, you know, he particularly said how important that is for marginalized people. And he talked about that in terms of making sure that, that, that they gain in resources from sharing with us. And yeah, I think that was the main thing. Oh, and that when, when they share these stories, these gifts with us, that we really need to think about how we're using them to create action to solving the challenges they're facing. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that the resources really are each other. I mean, when we all first came together, we came together because we knew that each of us were connected to communities of practice that were doing very powerful work. And so we, ha we were holding a big hope at a really dark time of isolation and pandemic. And we said, how can we stay connected in that? And I hear from the conversations with everyone we talk to, they all are connected to communities. One of the things I'm excited about as we move forward 
is creating a website or other places where we can help people find each other and look at and learn from the action that people are already taking. So it's just, it's that idea from Stephanie, what's already there, just blowing on the flames so that they make a bigger and a bigger, warm future. Mm. And Raphael described that. He said, you know, because of the pandemic, we're all out of touch. Mm-hmm. And finding new creative ways to be in touch, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, through eye contact because we don't hug or shake hands as much as we used to, or whether it's staying on touch through these digital mediums with podcast conversations, website conversations, finding new ways to be in touch. Well, and if there's a silver lining from the pandemic, it is that I feel that we've really learned how to use technology, even something like Zoom, but certainly podcasts, to have really productive, close Um, relationships and conversations. I mean, Lois and I have been friends for 20 years, and we've gotten closer in the last two years across Boston and Oakland, learning how to really use Zoom (laughs) in a a intimate and relationship-based way. Yeah, the idea of being distant friends has taken on a whole new meaning yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Since, mm-hmm. yeah. since... I'm more distant with the folks in the Bay Area yeah. than I am with Lois. <laughs> I think we all are. <laughs> um, and another thing Raphael said that I thought was... Yeah, he, he's such a passionate guy. Um, he just said he really wanted us not to be timid. He said, you know, go out there and love. We've got to learn how to love, and that's, you know, go out there and blast out with it. And... I don't know. It was very compelling to me. I wanted to say, like, you were talking about learning in the pandemic, learning to use Zoom, the way that we've come to podcasting as a technology to help us blow on the flame, to have conversations, to share in conversation. But I want to think about podcasting as an expression of love because Raphael said we need to focus on love. And I feel love in this group of chill because we've spent two years online, you know, and people doubt that through technology or online that you can find group flow or that you can find love, but we have found it. And we want to share that. We we have to blow on our own flame. We have found love online. Wow, that sounded different. (laughs) (laughs) We have found love in a group of like-minded people in conversation and we've used technology to facilitate those conversations so i'm really looking forward to more conversations in the future so our conversations in the future they're going to be on more topics we're going to dive into climate change more we're going to dive into race violence and we're going to focus on the relationships that we're building we're not going to have generational cohorts anymore we're going to have mixed multi-generational conversations where we have high school students talking with our octogenarians and our millennials um, being like marco says the conductor between those above and those not above or beneath because that's way too vertical but older and younger older and younger you know (laughs) the horizontal line of the lifespan so um future future episodes are going to be really exciting and i think we're going to we're going to really start the wildfire (laughs) you know there's one more thing that i think is like a real challenge a huge challenge that's out there i mean people talked about the echo chambers and you know the blue bubble and and you know we're in it 
where we are, but I think it's critically important that we reach out to people who we don't normally speak with and try and figure out how we can start to hear more voices than the voices of our friends. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to make friends with people I don't usually speak with. Mm -hmm. We're going to open our hearts Mm -hmm. to others. Yeah. More love. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing we do is turn towards one another and create islands where we feel safe and secure. And the second thing we do is to build bridges to different islands. And it's time for some bridge building. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited for our multi-generational conversations in the future. And listeners, we will have more details on that soon. Plans are currently being made. And when they're ready, you can find all the details again here on the Chill Podcast or on our website. Up next in our last episode of this introductory um, series, we are each going to take a turn to reflect on what it means to us each personally to be a part of this group and to be a part of this project. So thanks again for being with us and go listen to the next episode. There is more chillin' to do. The Chill Podcast is produced by the BYU Arts Partnership. Special thanks to James Houston for editing, Tavin Barrowman for the artwork, and Scott Flox for the music. If you like what you've heard, please leave a review. This helps tremendously as we work to bring more people to our chill conversations. You can find the show notes and more about chill at thechillpodcast.com or on social media our handle is at the chill podcast and that's chill C H L L for Callie, Heather, Lois, and Louise. We can't wait to chill with you next time. <laughs>